Welcome back to the Evelyn Fusen Show. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you Misty Gilbert. Welcome, Misty. It's so good to have you here in this community. I've been really looking forward to this time together. Thank you, Evelyn. I've been looking forward to having a conversation with you today. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do in the world and, um, and what you're working on right now. Okay. Well, I, <clears throat> I'm an entrepreneur and I've been an entrepreneur since 2004. Uh, I actually own three businesses. Um, the first one that I launched in 2004 originally was doing medical billing, but it evolved over time uh, to helping small businesses be state and federal compliant on several levels, whether that's with employees, taxes, um, licensure, uh, not just the medical billing and coding and insurance rules and regulations. So um, that business, like I said, launched in 2004. In 2016, I launched my second business, um, which is one where I do transformational coaching. That was born out of my story, really just my passion, my life. I'm very vulnerable on social media platforms, sharing my journey. Um, I believe that we need more people being vulnerable in the moment of their pain and their journey. And so other people can see that, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be an Oprah or John Maxwell in five years from now, explain what you're going through five years ago, um, and then make it a teaching lesson and a money-making opportunity. Nothing wrong with that, but I think that that has set people up to feel that they have to hide what they're currently going through. So um, that business was born out of that. And in uh, January, 2019, I did a TEDx talk, um, The Art of Authenticity, How to Show the Real You, where I shared my story publicly in a, obviously a broader um, audience level. And um, the other business I have is just, I have right now two rentals. My goal is to have five. I want more residual income um, and assets that work for me. So those are my three businesses. Mm. Well, and... I, um, I love entrepreneurs because what I love about entrepreneurship, small businesses, um, creative endeavors like that is it's to me, it's one of the biggest like personal growth journeys you can go through because every single day you're kind of coming up, um, not against yourself, but you have to face things about yourself. And as you touched on too, um, in your transformational work with your story, that was one of the reasons that I really reached out to you because I, um, I have seen your vulnerability. I have seen um, the way that you're willing to go through life and invite people to witness the process. And that was one of the reasons that this podcast was even born. So mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to have you on as a guest and I would love for you to share that story here with this community. Um, and, and as much detail or, or wherever you want to start. Sure. Um, but you, like I've, I've expressed to you before, I, I see so um, much in you and I'm so grateful for the way that you are showing up in the world because it, it takes courage and it takes, um, it takes that resilience. And, mm -hmm. and, and I do hope that we're ushering in a new paradigm as we continue to show up in that process. Yeah, I, I share that heart with you. I feel that energetically around the world, I think a lot of people, whether it's through mental health, whether it's through um, autoimmune disease, I think we're learning a lot more about the mind-body connection. And there's a lot of great work out there where there's um, Dr. Joe Dispenza, um, Tony Robbins, there's a lot of people who have great content, but I think on a 
fundamental relationship level that people are learning that they can't just put a mask on. And that was my term prior to the pandemic and it having a new meaning. But I also feel at the same time with this new meaning, it gives more visual to people um, to show up. And, and when you're asked how you are, you don't have to say, I'm fine. You can say, I'm having a really hard day. Today, I'm sad. Today, I'm angry. Today, I'm frustrated. Today, I, I, I'm just not myself. And I think that being able to talk about that um, I get told frequently, you write about things I would never imagine putting out on social media. And there are people who've unfriended me who feel that my content needs to be long in my journal. <laughs> um, and, and I understand. And, and I have to remember that they're coming from that because they haven't addressed their own pain. Mm -hmm. And I believe culturally, even in my own home, pain was not taught as something to embrace. It was taught as something to fight. And I believe there's a lot of power in our pain. And I believe true transformation most of the time evolves because of pain. We don't generally majorly transform just by being aggressive and positive and tackling our issues. <laughs> it's usually some kind of disaster or catastrophic event or circumstances where we feel boxed in a corner with no way out that forces us to address what's going on. Mm. So for me, um, the story that I share with people is about the fact that I was raped at 17 um, by a man 28 years older than me who had two twin boys my age. He was in the medical field, somebody who had done my um, public ultrasound in looking at why I was having such pain. Um, this was prior to being diagnosed with endometriosis, so we were very suspicious of it because of it being in the family history. Um, and really my story, you know, in that sense captures a lot of people because I was 17 and my parents didn't believe me and they can't understand that. And the thing that's hard to explain to people is even though that was a very difficult experience, um, I bled for three and a half weeks. Hmm. Um, I, the real trauma was what I had to deal with afterwards and not because of memories necessarily, not that those weren't there and not that I didn't have nightmares and things for years that I had to face, but it was how my parents responded to me because I was raised in a religious environment that truly at the heart was a cult. Um, and my parents had strong beliefs about no sex before marriage and that you always had control over your body. And then if a man got in your pants, it was your fault. Hmm. So their approach to life was if you've had sexual sins, you had to reap for that. And my parents were very strict about what that looked like. So they instilled a seven-year sentence on my life, which included range of punishment. And the goal was to bring me to my knees. Those are their words. Um, and to make me be repentant because they didn't feel I had a repentive heart. Um, much of the punishment was abusive. So it began by taking away um, anything that they felt was a privilege. So sharing a bedroom with my sister, we shared a twin, uh, a double bed. We had our entire lives pretty much. Um, I was removed and my bedroom was put in the dining room and I was put in a twin bed with a sheet and a small blanket and a pillow. Um, my Bible, one picture frame, one lamp, and a little bookcase. There are no other, no other things that you would normally have with you as comforts or enjoyment, books, all those things were taken away, knitting, hobbies. Um, 
my wardrobe was condensed to five outfits. They wanted it to be difficult to make it through an entire week. Um, the five outfits were plain, no patterns, um, subdued colors, um, very simple looking. And my mom's idea of that was out of the Bible and being sackcloth that people wore in their lamenting and remorse. And so she wanted that to be an outward image um, to those around me. Um, that meant no jewelry, no hair bows, no hair clips that were fancy, just plain, basic stuff. Um, same thing with shoes, two pair of shoes. But it went further because my parents believed that, you know, now I've been infected and so I was contaminated um, as, a, as a person, as a body. And so my bath towel couldn't hang next to my siblings, which normally had always been the protocol in the bathroom. We all three kids shared the same bathroom and me and my sister shared a bath towel rod and my brother had his own. And so now I was the one who had my own because my bath towel probably had AIDS. And these were things they said. Um, they were paranoid um, about any you know, bodily fluids, any open wounds if I was cooking in the kitchen. So I had to wear latex glove, which I'm allergic to latex. So that brought on a whole thing where my hands and fingers, arms broke out in a rash up to my elbows. Um, and initially my mom said she wasn't gonna get me any cortisone cream to deal with that. That was my punishment. And you know, so be it, if I'm allergic to latex, that's the way it is. And so then my arms started getting infected, you know, things started getting worse. And so she had to, but you know, the tube was $5 for cortisone cream. And she would, you know, tell me, I hate having to buy this for you. You don't deserve it. Um, she was just constantly every way you can imagine, um, very hateful, very ugly, very abusive. Um, I was never allowed then anymore to be around my siblings. So if my parents were around, I could be with my siblings, but if they weren't around and, that, and when I say around, that means just simply sitting in the living room, having a conversation on the couch. Um, if my parents weren't in the living room, I could not be by my siblings. They looked at me as basically the household slave. If they needed a tissue and they were sitting on the couch, Misty, go get me a tissue. Like everything turned into being a slave. I was woken up at six in the morning. I was told to work until nine o'clock at night, go to bed, do it all over the next day. And I was given tasks that were very mundane many times. Sometimes they were exhausting. Many of them not even necessary to be done, but it was to keep me busy, keep my mind busy um, because my mom said she didn't want me getting into any more trouble. So it was rejection on many levels where they extended the um, kitchen table out to the full maximum leaves that could go into the table. It was an oval table. And I was sit at the end by myself and they sat at the other end by themselves. I couldn't engage with dinner conversation. Um, I was the last one served. So everybody was served their food first. Um, I wasn't allowed seconds, this, you, you name it. Like it, it was whatever could be done to make my life miserable, they did. Um, this form of dealing as punishment wasn't necessarily new to me. Um, as, as a child, we, we were at times spanked, we were at times reprimanded, we were disciplined in different ways. But if that discipline quote unquote didn't work, then they would take it to deeper levels. Um, particularly with my brother, he was always a liar. So mom would take away cookies, sweets. So no, no cereal that was coated with sugar. So like fruit loops or things, right? No, none of that. He could have the plain cornflakes, but not put sugar or honey on it. 
Um, so that kind of discipline wasn't, it wasn't unique to me to this level was definitely over the top and to put biblical reference around it about a seven year sentence because of seven year plagues, um, where God judged Israelites and various things. They took this into making it a religious reason and that God wanted this, me to endure this and that my sentence would be shortened based on, uh, my repentance and how, um, obliging I was to follow through with these things and not be defiant, rebellious, which are things they accused me of all the time. Um, wasn't allowed to have my 18th birthday. My driver's license was taken away from me. Uh, my auto insurance was canceled. My, they threatened to cancel my health insurance because I did have significant health issues. Mitral valve, tricuspid valve prolapse. I was on heart medication uh, besides my allergies and things like that. They didn't end up doing it, but it was a constant threat. Um, and when I turned 18, they decided they wouldn't pay for it anymore. Um, with my dad's employer, I could still maintain on the plan for extra hundred bucks a month. So they told me it was my responsibility to make that money, but they didn't want me working out in the workforce. So I had to figure out how to make that money and not work outside the home. And so I started initially with babysitting, but that became an irritant to my mother because she didn't like having little kids in the house. And it just, we were again, in the cult, we didn't wear pants. So the mom would show up with pants in, in bringing, dropping off her daughter. And that made my mom angry, felt violated, felt, you know, she wasn't in her space inappropriately, just a lot of stuff. So um, eventually I did get a job at a dermatologist's office, but, you know, it, it, the, the punishment continued in various ways. Like I needed a vehicle, they wouldn't co-sign. Um, they just, everything they could do to make my life extremely hard, they did. Um, and all of it was based around, I was a horrible person. I was used goods. I didn't deserve anything. Um, and I was punished. I had to reap for my, my deeds and what I had sown. Mm. And truthfully at the time, you know, I didn't really see it fully as being raped because of how my parents' beliefs were. Even though I knew what happened, I you know, I was under the pretense that, you know, quote unquote, I allowed this to happen. Um, never mind, the man came in my house through the back door that was unlocked at seven in the morning on a Saturday or Sunday, whatever it was. Like, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> it took years for me to realize the depth of what really happened. Um, but initially, when my parents took me out of my sister's room, they had me sleep at the bottom of their bed in their master bedroom. And then, you know, that was infringing on their privacy. So I was kicked to the couch in the living room. And then that was inappropriate because I'm laying down on the couch. And my mom's belief was you don't lay down in front of men. Um, that's a turn on. So you had to be sitting up. So I had to be up before my dad would be coming out of the bedroom to have breakfast and head to work. And so eventually they came up with a plan and they built a little partition in the dining room and it became my, my bedroom. And the partition was just basically a normal wall with a sheetrock, no insulation or anything like that. And then an accordion door that they got at Home Depot. And that was my room. And it was my room for the next three and a half years until I left. So what ended up happening is in my seven-year sentence, I ended up not fulfilling that seven-year sentence. Um, my sister moved out on her 18th birthday. And I, three months later, wanted to come see her. She moved to Texas. I came to see her and while I was here, people of the same church wanted to speak with me regarding my childhood and what happened. And 
get clarification on things because they had all this had been kept a secret. Nobody knew. And so they wanted to know if this was really true. And so I had a conversation with one of the ministers for five hours and he, you know, it's like when we learn of these kinds of things, we wouldn't want somebody to go back to that environment. So we had to work through the fact that my parents believed I needed to stay at home until I was married. And so a lot of things to work through, but in the end, I didn't go home. I decided to stay and I went home two weeks later to get my stuff, but we did it in a way where we didn't let my parents know I was coming until the night before um, because I didn't trust them with all that they had done. Um, I mean, they didn't trust me. They closed their bank accounts. They opened new bank accounts. They closed all their credit cards, opened new credit cards. I mean, they made me to, out to be like I was um, the worst criminal in the world and that I was going to steal their money because I had access to their credit cards. Um, I was going to do fraud. I was going to do, I couldn't even go to the mailbox. That's how much of a prison they put me in um, where I was monitored 24 um, seven. So a lot of people say, how did you cope? And I would say that every day it was, how I'm going to get through today. What do I need to do to get through today? Okay. I can't control how they're going to treat me. I can't control if they're going to slap my face. I can't control if they're going to throw me up against the wall, put their hands around my neck and scream at me. Um, I, I can't control all that. I can't control that they're going to make me do AIDS testing every six months to prove that I don't have AIDS. Um, we went to the county health department. We utilized the public free service and, you know, that was an ordeal of itself. My mom felt humiliated because she was being taken to low-class society and this was not her choice. And she would physically beat me um, because she didn't want to be there. And then when I get back in the room with the healthcare pro professional, you know, they quiz you on when was the last time you had sex? Was it protected, unprotected? How many partners? And I'm like, no partners, one-time incident, no reoccurrence don't have condoms, don't need condoms. Why are you here? My mom believes I have AIDS, but your last test was negative, correct? Yes, correct. Then you don't need another test. I said, my mom doesn't believe you guys know what you're talking about. <laughs> it, you know, it became this war and, and I had to stand up because I knew I couldn't walk out of there not getting that test. And so I would look them in the eye and I'd go, I understand you're going to have to, I live at home. This is what my mom wants. You're going to have to do this. And so they would, because they can't deny you. Um, and they also know that you may not really be being honest, right? And so I had to deal with that humiliation, that though I knew I hadn't been re-exposed, though I knew that I didn't have partners, though I knew all these things, I had to do this because it was, quote unquote, my punishment. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, I did feel it was punishment. Um, I didn't really see it as abuse. I saw it as punishment. Now, later, I see it as abuse. I see it as manipulation, control, um, my own parents' beliefs, you know, carrying over into my life in ways that, you know, I didn't have control over. Um, but the three and a half years I lived were miserable. They were miserable. You know, eventually I got a few more clothes. Eventually I got, you know, a few things, but they made big deals out of it. You know, when I finally got to have my... Um, 18th birthday. My birthday's in November, so we got to have it March the following year. Um, <clears throat> they made a huge big deal, and but they also were limited, and it wasn't a full blown party, and because they didn't believe I had fully repented. You know, they wanted to show respect that you know you can have your birthday now. You've done some work, 
but we don't believe you've been the prodigal son. You haven't come home. You haven't seen what you've done. And so the, we're only giving you a little bit of a token, right? And so it was a constant black cloud um, that they had over me. And I'm they, curious, Misty. <clears throat> yeah. What, what do you believe would have been enough for that atonement and repentance? You know, even if I had stayed there the full seven years, I don't know if that would have been enough. Um, I don't know if that would have, you know, because I was the firstborn, they had expectations out of me to be their perfect child. And now I was no longer their perfect child and they didn't trust me. So they demoted me as firstborn child and told me you are now lastborn. For the rest of our lives, we do not look at you as firstborn. You will not handle our estate. You will not handle our financial affairs. You will not be in the will. You will not this, you will not that. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm 45. That happened when I was 17. I don't, I don't think that'll, it'll ever, ever be. Yeah. If I've done the full seven years, would they have been more proud of me? Would they have felt they got what, you know, the sentence that I deserved? I think it would be any, any different than another individual who'd been raped and, and the victim was in prison and got out early. There's people who deal with, you know, anger and like, they didn't serve their time. Like maybe if I had, it would have put more of a dent in it. Maybe they would have felt that the time showed my true remorse, you know, but again, my parents didn't really spend time asking questions. If they had asked more questions, they would have learned more things, but I also was taught that if you had sex with a man, you married him. So like when they asked me if I loved him, the man was married. There was no way to marry him. But I was like, yeah, I would go marry him. Part of it was I wanted to be out of the hell. Like, you know, like it was like I wanted to be gone. So there was confusion in my own heart and mind as far as, you know, what all that that meant. Um, and you were so more, young. Like yeah. Just so young. But the more that I got away from when I moved out three and a half years later, moved to Texas, um, I kept in touch with my parents for the first three months I moved, but, um, they were very, every time they talked to me, raked me over the coals. And so it got to a point where I realized it would tear me up. I would undo the work that I was doing to, as I say, unthaw from my parents' environment. And the minister that I was working with said, you know, we would recommend you just cut all ties with your parents. And so my mom might send a birthday gift or a birthday card. Um, but I did not communicate with my mom. I didn't respond. Um, if she sent money, like sometimes she sent a $10 check, I'd return it. Eventually I just shredded it because it didn't need to be returned. Like I made it clear what I wanted and she was still trying to be defiant and quote unquote, send me a card, honey, I love you, you know? Um, but I had a lot to learn about what love was like and that I was good enough and that I didn't deserve what happened. Um, I didn't, I didn't, but that took time. And I had a lot of fear of men. My mom created an environment of that be with my dad. She would never leave us alone with my dad. And so when I say leave us alone, again, kind of like me with my siblings in the living room, if it was an evening and dad's reading the newspaper and I'm sitting on the couch, she's at one end or the other couch across from me. If mom left the room to go to the bathroom, go lay down, she wasn't in the vicinity, I was supposed to leave. Uh, I was not supposed to stay there. This was prior to being raped. This was just standard operating procedures in our house. And our living room is an open kitchen, dining living room concept. There was not walls, it wasn't a den, there was no doors, it wasn't dark, it wasn't 
there wasn't like something that would create an environment that you might feel something hanky panky as she would say could happen um but it went so far as when my dad would drive us to school um because in junior high we didn't ride the bus they didn't want us exposed to worldly kids kept us sheltered and so we'd ride with dad on the way to work he'd drop us off at the corner and we'd walk however many miles it was from there to the school he wouldn't take us to school and drop us off we had to walk but mom would say things like when you sit in the car make sure that you don't allow the seatbelt to go between your breasts and turn daddy on she planted things like this she would say when you're wiping off the kitchen table after dinner sit your butt in the chair make sure your legs are underneath the table wipe the table don't bend over with your butt up in the air like a bee men get turned on by women in their in their bodies so she made me feel very self-conscious about my body and the more work that I've done through counseling and working with coaches and a lot of therapy I've learned that she created a complete environment I cannot imagine what my body language was like hmm. so if you've if you've read the book the gift of fear or listened to audiobook you you know like we carry out the beliefs that are instilled in us we carry them out energetically so I wasn't a strong, confident woman. I was scared. And that fear of men was pretty strong. I did my best to stuff it, but it was there. And so one of the things that I developed after moving to Texas was to wear a wedding band on my left hand to quote unquote, keep men away. It made me feel in charge of my life. It made me feel not available. It made me feel that um, I was, um, I had power that I never felt I had, right? And I could choose who was going to be in my world and who wasn't. Now, I was in the medical field and, and worked as a, eventually as a practice administrator and, you know, dealt with drug reps and stuff. And they come in and they're all chummy with you. We should go have drinks sometime. And what does your husband do? And I was like, I don't have a husband. Um, I wear this ring because of other reasons. Like I would say that. I wouldn't tell them why, because I don't even know that I could really formulate why. Yeah. Um, but eventually, you know, as I did work, on myself, particularly a course in Utah um, in 2014, it was called Live Big, and it's similar to other programs out there like um, Landmark. Um, there's a couple others, I forget their names right off as I'm trying to tell you, but it was a very intensive three-day, 12-hour thing. And um, the second time I did that, my buddy, you have an accountability, accountability buddy, challenged me to remove my ring through, through one of the work processes we did and I was like "Ooh, I gotta do that so you know there was there was times later that I really had to work through a lot of stuff um, but I was in that environment as far as my parents until I was 20 I was in the church environment until I was 37 and I'm 45 so the work the last seven eight years has been enormous um, the transformation in my life started because of a painful experience. I had a client hit me in the head twice. And that experience made me not want to eat, sleep, work. It took me back to my childhood and my mom abusing me, smacking me in the head, throwing me up against the wall. Um, and I had nightmares and I physically did not have the coping skills to know how to deal with that. And in the church that I was a part of, they did not believe in counseling. They believe praying, going to God, living the burdens at the cross, that kind of thought concept, but not doing talk therapy with somebody who they would say may or may not be a Christian. <laughs> they claim to be. They're very judgmental on the works and the, the fruit you could see from somebody's life and whether you can really trust them. 
And uh, I finally, I decided that was in 2013 that I was going to get help. After six weeks of that, I decided I'm going to get help. I'm, I'm not going to live like this. I, I have a choice. I am not boxed in a corner. There are options. This may be hell. This may not be cool. This may be destroying my life, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I did. And the counselor I worked with, we ended up going back. She had me tell her my story and write out my story and read then my story to her every session I came. We did 17 sessions. It took 17 sessions to get through my story. And then at that point in time, I decided I would try to tell my story once a week to somebody to get more comfortable with the truth because my mom had, you know, scared the shit out of me that if I ever shared what went on in my childhood, she would physically kill me. And I truthfully believed her because of how she abused us and because of the fact that that some of that abuse was pretty intense. Um, She burned my brother's feet with matches three times. So the thought that my mom could kill me wasn't to me a far-fetched idea. Did I really truthfully think it happened? She's in California and I live in Texas. No, but I also knew how deep her anger could be. And I I, I didn't want to risk that until it came to a point that I was risking my life in the misery I was in and realized I had to have help. I hadn't really, even though I had healed and I'd moved on and I was a successful person doing various things, I had stuffed most of that inside of me. Mm -hmm. Um, I lived in Texas three years before even ministry learned completely what went on in my childhood because that meeting that I referred to that I had when I came to visit my sister that was five hours long, I answered the questions kind of like you would do an interrogation process with the police. You don't offer more information, whatever they tell you, you answer, and then you shut up right out of respect, out of whatever. Um, and that's what I did. Um, some out of fear of my mom, some out of, I didn't want to discuss it. I, I left in my mind. I'm done. That's behind me. Let's move on. Like, I, I can't control that. I can't undo it. Rehashing. It's not going to do anything. And there've been people who've been upset with me for not pressing charges with my mother and not doing more legal action. And I've told people if my mom had run a daycare or something, dealing with little kids where she could be abusing other people, I would have, I would have, but I didn't feel that my sister, my brother, or myself needed to go through any of that kind of thing before a a judge, a courtroom, a jury. And my parents never had much money. And even if they did, I didn't want her money. Like there's nothing I wanted from that. And I didn't feel it would accomplish anything. So it's taken many painful experiences that have caused me to deal with the trauma from my childhood. Yeah. Well, rightfully so. Yeah. Rightfully so. You went through something, you know, I mean, you were already experiencing abuse before, before that. And then to bring that to your parents, to the people who are supposed to protect you, who weren't protecting you before that mm-hmm. and then to further take you and ostracize you and strip you of your identity of your rights mm-hmm. um, it was it was a lot to process too because of the fact that I brought it to them I, I told them what happened and so there was even more level of vulnerability in I let them know what happened and then their mistrust and their anger at me um I told my mom, we were at home. I told my mom, she called my dad at work. He quit work. He came home. He was, I had never seen my dad so angry in my life. And 
I was sitting in their bedroom. We having a conversation and he spit at me across the room, literally like, I mean, a full good, like 15 feet apart. He spit at me right in front of my feet. And he's like, I hope you know what I think about you. And it's just, it was, it was humiliating. I'd never been treated like, like that. I mean, my parents wouldn't say were the most loving kind of people, but I'd, I'd never been treated like that, especially from my dad. My mom was the one who was more abusive, the one who did more of the punishment. Um, my dad would spank us as kids. That was kind of how things were until we could, girls got 13. Then we were older and developing and that was going to be inappropriate. So mom would do the spanking. Um, she, mom chose to do ways of spanking that was more, that always went for the belt. Mom would get a spatula she would get the telephone cord because it stung really bad. Like she had her ways to like, and she kept it changing just to keep you always guessing yeah. <laughs> what you were going to get. Um, but we always got more abusive if we showed emotion. So if we cried a lot with getting a spanking, we would get more spanking. But then if we didn't cry, we get more spanking. Like it was always a guessing game how to make it happen. Um, but I learned to stuff a lot of my energy, negative energy into my body. And I know that it's something I'm still learning to unravel because I'm dealing with autoimmune issues that I know come from years of stress, years of, of suppressing that energy and that emotion, years of making myself wrong, bad. In the religion, we were wrong, bad women because we turned men on. If our clothes were too sexy, our necklines were too low, in all these things. And so when I say the radical shift in my life, it wasn't just unraveling this on my own now, going to counseling and coming to grips with it, but I left the church. And so I was no longer wearing dresses, hair down to my butt. Um, I now was wearing makeup, cut my hair, earrings, pants, mixed swimming, guys and girls going together swimming. Those were things we were never allowed to do. No fingernail polish, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, movies, dating, um, sports, entertainment, all that stuff was considered worldly, not godly, not appropriate ways to spend your time, your energy, your money. Um, and so the last, you know, again, seven, eight years now, my life has, has really shifted mm -hmm. and it's been some deep, deep work. It's been some, but on the other side of it, it has been more rewarding and it's been more freedom um, you can go back and look at pictures of me. You can see how much younger I look, um, between that time. And then now, um, and it's still a, a learning experience, um, of, of unraveling the effect of those beliefs. Um, when you're taught that your body is supposed to be a loving thing in a relationship, but that it's always wrong to turn on a man there it's, it's, it's been a growing experience to learn what does it mean to be own my sexuality, own my beauty and not be wrong because a man is attracted to me. Um, not be wrong because a man wants to have sex with me. Like, you know, it, it's been, it's been some work to remove all that embedded sublingual messaging besides the bold face messaging that, you know, how you are, how you're supposed to show up and how you're supposed to be around a man. Um, but we were always on pins and needles. We weren't relaxed. Um, 
And so I've had to learn a lot, a lot about energy, a lot about thoughts and, and feelings and expressing them, um, owning how I feel, not making how I feel wrong. Um, but I don't have a relationship with my mom. My dad passed away in 2013. Um, I still don't have a relationship with my mom and I don't desire to. That is largely just because she still to this day doesn't respect me. She still believes my appropriate quote unquote place is to be at home taking care of her. If I don't have a man who's wanting to marry me, then that's my place is to be there with her. And I don't hold that belief. And being, I know how she looks at me as the firstborn and various things. I don't, I don't feel that I need to subject myself to that environment, that condescending attitude and um, continual punishment degrading me, treating me like a child. And I struggle with it now. I'm in, in, in various situations in my life right now, I'm going through circumstances of being disrespected and learning currently today, as we're talking, how do I approach these relationships and stand up for me and honor me and the inappropriateness of scenarios? And sometimes it's still hard to figure that out. I relate to being able to express my emotions and energy very well in writing. Um, in the moment, certain situations are very hard for me to do that. It's not that I can't, but when it involves me, it's hard. If it involves someone else, I have a lot more ability to do it. But if it involves me, I hold my breath. I kind of go into a mindset of I'm going to endure this. And when it's over, it's over. Um, and so I'm having to learn how to stand up for myself and that when I do, even if I get negative reactions to that, I'm still not wrong and I'm still not bad. Mm. And that's, that's hard. That's hard. Yes. Well, it's interesting too. You mentioned that your mom is expecting you to come take care of her, the firstborn privileges and those things when yeah. she herself stripped you of that right. So it, there, it's, you can never win. And so I think what's also interesting about your story, Misty, is not only were you walking through, like coming into like a new life, like orienting a new life when you moved and having to reparent yourself, you've been in this constant state of survival from one period to the next. And it sounds like the last seven or eight years, it's a switch from, I'm not just surviving anymore. Like I want to learn how to thrive. I want yes. to learn how to be me. And that's yeah. powerful. It, I mean, you got to understand, I, we lived in a little town called Apple Valley, California, and we were not allowed to associate with school kids, neighbor kids, anything. So I lived a very secluded life. My connection with society, with people was letter writing. My mom made us always seek out mothers with babies grandmas that didn't have maybe children through the church. And so there were people I pen palled every week and wrote letters to what was going on in my life. And so that became a, a, my connection to the outside world. Um, my um, allowance began in the sixth grade at 25 cents a week. And when I, my 18th birthday, it was 250. So I never had much money. Okay. And my allowance 
had to be, if I wanted to call, say, one of those pen pals and have a conversation, I had to take my own hard-earned money to have that phone call. And we're talking back in the day, you know, long distance wasn't free and all the stuff that it is like now, you know, dial up rotary phones, like, you know, it was a different setting. And I would, I would spend my full allowance to call and have a conversation for 20 minutes with somebody. Um, But I still, nobody ever knew, nobody ever knew what was going on. And so I always felt like a fake. I always felt like if people knew, what would they think of me? And so I think that's one of the things that's become so strong in my message about authenticity is because not only the environment that I was living in a quote unquote religious culture that should have loved and respected me no matter what was going on, my mom didn't and I wasn't trusted and I wasn't believed and you had to act like you were fine and okay. And then when I came out out of shame and guilt, you know, I didn't want to deal with any of that. I just moved on. I got a job and started doing things and moving on with my life. I looked very successful, but inwardly I was still hurting and unable to deal with what most people have dealt with in their childhood with relationships, particularly, right? I started dating at 37 after I left the church. So then you're trying to learn how to communicate with somebody. And I had always been taught that we did courting and that in the, in you had a chaperone. And so now I'm away from all that. I don't have to have a chaperone. I can meet a man at Starbucks, complete stranger. But how do I, how do, how do am I going to feel about it? If I go in with a lot of apprehension and animosity and, and fear, I'm not going to be myself. And so I had to learn to how to be. And, and through that process, I learned I had masks. I had ways that I was portraying myself because I couldn't deal with the back part of my life. Mm. And I, I do think, you know, there's an element we're going to, we're going to be raised however we're raised. And then we're going to spend the rest of our life unraveling that, however that is. And so I don't now look at this as a horrible thing. It's my situation. It's my circumstances, but it has put me in some unique um, opportunities where I, um, I am having to do more emotional intelligence work and do more um, cognitive thinking, mind-body connection than what most people would think of in normal everyday circumstances, right? There are times I can handle myself really well and there's other times I completely shut down and I become like a two-year-old, unable to express myself, unable to, to deal emotionally in the moment, almost become belligerent because out of frustration. And so those things, those feelings are things that I have to be very aware of and practice unconditional love, unconditional grace, mercy, kindness, compassion. Um, And it is hard sometimes to share my story, not because I'm afraid of it, but because people's reactions, the shock value, if they, if you've not listened to my Ted talk, you've not listened to another podcast, you've not read my book, blah, blah, blah. You're like, Misty, this is 2022. How does this stuff happen? Like you're, you make me think I'm living in the 1800s, right? That's people's reaction. It's like, how can this be happening? And people know these things happen. They hear stories that end up on Oprah and various things, 
but to know somebody and meet somebody. And I get, I get told all the time, but you're so normal. You're so normal. And I have to help them understand what they think is normal, what normal is to me and what I'm working through to become normal, if that makes sense. Um, and a lot of that truthfully is putting myself, Evelyn, in situations that scare the absolute shit out of me, doing the very things that I was told was wrong, bad, and, and to do those things and to see that I could do them and I wasn't going to be taken advantage of by a man. Yeah. Yeah. And earlier too, you know, even talking about your story, we, and you talked about pain at the beginning, we don't teach people how to be with suffering. We don't teach people how to be with their pain or to be with other people's pain. And, um, and it is, there's a lot of intensity there. There's a lot of, um, I'm sure too, just the, the compassion, the ways that you want to just scoop people up and not know mm -hmm. how to do it, feel afraid. I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. So in, in that, in that frame too, I'm curious, like what has been the most supportive to you, like in this space in community? Cause you and I talked before too, you've been in some communities that have not been conducive or supportive to healing, mm -hmm. even though they claim to be. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what has been healing for you? Maybe not even just in community, but in some of the ways that you've been able to bring that authenticity, to feel to the safety, to take off the masks or to learn how to, to be who Misty is in that freedom. I think learning, uh, you know, initially to, to trust my story, that it's my story and I can't change somebody's perception as to how, how the, you know, their shock value or whatever. Like there are people who learn how to share a story to create that shock value. I'm not, I'm sharing the story as facts, as if you're reading a newspaper article. I'm not here to create a dialogue and, and enhance certain parts of it or say it in such a way that it makes you feel certain energies, okay? I don't even have certain bullet points when I give interviews like this, that I'm trying to cover certain things every time to make sure the certain points are made. I want people to ask questions that come to their mind. I want people to, you know, have that question in the back of their mind, how is this possible, you know, and, and be, feel free to answer it. And then I answer, you know, people say, I don't want to ask you any questions that make you uncomfortable. You can't ask me any questions that are going to make me uncomfortable. I've already been through everything that's uncomfortable. You know, I've had to learn that people are going to be awestruck because of my experience. And then they're going to put me on a pedestal because I couldn't do what you do. And I'm I tell people all the time, do not compare my life and my story to yours. What you went through on your level is just as bad as what I went through. If it tore you up, it lost your confidence, it made you insecure, it made you feel treated like a child, disrespected, all those things that I was feeling, you experienced the same thing I did. The intensity of what I did might be a whole bunch worse, yes. But I've also had to, through therapy, learn, you know, I felt my brother's situation was way worse than mine. I didn't have my feet burned with matches, right? And the whole dynamic of how that even came about with him. But my therapist had me realize, like, you saw it. Your mom brought you into the punishment of your brother and 
how that dealt with his food and fixing him quote unquote nasty food. She had us make and make the food, come up with the bad ideas, all these things. She's like, that's just as torture as your brother who's in it. You, you don't see it that way, but it's the truth. And so I've had to learn to trust other people who have more understanding of the psychological aspects of the mind, the body and discipline and people's thinking so that I, I can grow and I can and move forward and not stay in a box. Um, but I would say every time I challenge, I feel like maybe I shouldn't talk about this. I've learned it's time to talk about it. The mere fact that you think it's not now you're holding back because of somebody else's perception of you. So some of that has, has been my therapy is to do the very things that people say you shouldn't do. So like, um, my mom, for instance, when I became a contributing author in 2015, she got wind that I was sharing the story in a book and she, for three days called me in a row, finally left a harassing voicemail. You have no permission to talk about me, your dad, um, your siblings, anything that was done to you as a child, like blah, blah, blah. If you do, I'm going to sue you. Well, hearing my mom's voice on a voicemail say all that, it triggered me. Um, even though I had conversations with her, it triggered me and it set me off. And I decided to consult with two attorneys and figure out what can I say, what I can't say. I'm not trying to get my mom in trouble. I'm not trying to share this to blackmail her. I'm not trying to say this is my mom. This is where she lives. This is her date of birth, her social, go kill her. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help people understand that you have lived a life that nobody knows and it has validity and it has space that needs to be heard because people don't understand how you deal with these kinds of things, how you mentally work with the pain and the trauma of a, a parent, somebody that you should trust completely, right? Um, but the dynamic was, I didn't really trust my mom and I don't know when that, when that happened because she, I started having health problems at a young age, various eczema, things like that. But then as I got older, eight, 10, more things started happening. Um, around the time I was 10, I started having a fever of 102, 103 every day for three years, two and a half years, whatever, something a long, long time. They never found what was wrong. My white blood cells were very low. Um, at 13, I started having such stress, heart palpitations, stopped, couldn't breathe. They rushed me to the ER. That's when they discovered I had mitral valve and tricuspid valve prolapse. Two of my valves not opening and closing correctly. So they put me on heart medication. Um, but then my mom treated me like an invalid. She wouldn't let me empty the dishwasher. She wouldn't let me put something above my uh, closet, the shelf above my clothes. Anything reaching above was supposed to put more strain on the heart. I couldn't exercise. Like, so I became very frail mm. because she treated me like, you know, and she controlled controlled me. If I felt like I was getting sick, getting an ear infection, no, you're fine. And then it would get so bad. It would take two or three antibiotics to get rid of it because it was out of control. Then there are other times I tell her, I think I'm fine. It's just allergies. It's just dripping. It's just sore. No, no, you're going to the doctor. So I never trusted my own body. So through this, these things all were established as, as a baseline prior to ever being raped, prior to ever being then put through, um, 
a punishment phase, right? So the healing has been to learn to trust my feelings. They're not wrong. They're not bad. Um, the healing has been to talk about the things that I've been forbidden to talk about. The healing has been to, you know, in my TED talk, I say the art of authenticity. Authenticity, my definition is to be open, to be real, to be raw, to be vulnerable. Open means no topics off the table. It's not just a few things that we talk about. Anything is open is open. Raw means like, I'm not trying to construct this to make you absorb it in a better way. It's raw. It's, it, it's the actual facts that happened. Uh, real, like no pretense about it. No fakeness about it. Um, the reality of exactly what it was. And then vulnerable is like those things that express really what you were feeling, you were thinking, how you dealt with something, um, what you still struggle with and not act like, you know, people, sometimes I get mad at when people say hurting people hurt people. And then they'll say loving people love people. And both of those things are true. But the problem is we all are that at any given day and any point in time. But people like to do this little thing. Well, if you've been to therapy after so many years, you're healed and that shouldn't bother you anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, it might not bother me anymore until I'm in a situation that takes it to another level. For instance, um, a couple of years ago, um, my Corvette had two flat tires on the same side. Well, Corvettes don't have spare tires. So I had to get a tow truck and the tow truck took me to um, a Love's truck stop. So we get the tire because the, the tow truck tire ended up with a flat. So we're waiting for the tow truck tire to get fixed so we can get my vehicle back on the road. Well, I'm hanging out at a truck stop in the service station. It's all men. And I'm wearing high heel plank platform shoes, white linen shorts, a navy sleeveless um, vested pinstripe. I look real classy, but I mean, I, I felt like a spectacle in a, a scummy area starting to feel like scum with the way these men are looking at me. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about things that you will face later is how to deal with that energy inside of me with these men looking at me as an attractive woman and yet looking me up and down, making snide remarks. How do I control that? How do I want to show up? That's, those are the ways that I had to practice. And those are the things that I, I shared that experience on social media and said how proud I was of how I handled that situation, how I took control of the conversation, what I guided us to talk about so that it wasn't ending up in, you know, are you, are you available and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, and yet not being bad. My, mo my mom would have made me bad because I was, you know, in there with shorts on and exposing my legs and all these things that I'm feeling, right? But being able to work through it in the moment and then be able to write about it and tell people like, these are the kinds of things that a rape victim goes through. It's not just the fact of, okay, they've been raped and then they get in a relationship later and maybe it's difficult to have sex. You know, being able then to say in the moment of having sex, this makes me feel this, and this makes me feel that, right? Um, this is painful. This makes me feel trapped again. Um, and being able to talk about those things instead of as a, when you're abused for so long, you just, you just stuff it and shove it. And you take it because it eventually will be over. And so the healing has been to go against all that thing that your mind says, you know, in, in a sense, a game it plays with you to keep you safe 
is to go past all those boundaries, but then also trust myself. If I'm working with a therapist and I don't feel I'm getting the help anymore to be able to go, I need to find a new therapist. This therapist isn't challenging me, right? This therapist isn't moving me forward. Um, so I've worked with a lot of coaches. I believe there's a place for counseling, but I do feel coaches do more in challenging your thinking to create the life that you really want um, and to guide you to that. There's place for talk therapy. There's a place for a lot of that, but I'm now working with an energy coach, which is something I've never done before and working on the energy in my body. What am I still not giving space for? Mm. Um, And a lot of that is just my increased knowledge of autoimmune disease and how it is deeply tied to emotions that have not been expressed for years. Mm-hmm. And now the body's at a point of breaking down and attacking itself, destroying its own DNA, which is literally what's happening to my body. And so far we don't have it under control. So I'm looking at other means of ways to create that, that I actually want in my life. Um, and it's not a false pretense of psyching yourself up that you're safe and always provided for and taken care of, but it is also understanding that you will always be guided and taken care of if you allow yourself to be. And if you believe that faith that God is with you, no matter what happens, it will turn for your good, even if it's a difficult situation. So whether you take the Bible verse, all things work for your good, or you take Tony Robbins philosophy that life's happening uh, for you, not to you. Um, but in, that's the hard part is to do it in the moment. It's easy to do five years outside of it and you're in counseling and talk about that. But how about in the moment when you're being abused, mistreated, disrespected, um, abandoned, rejected, whatever it is, can you still feel that way? At 13, my mom made me, um, write out my plans for a memorial because she was guaranteed I was going to die. And I had, who were the pallbearers, who were the songs, what I wanted said, all the, I literally, all of it. She also had me read a book called um, Pain as a Gift by Philip Yancey. It's a very gruesome book. It talks about um, the body and being eaten by rats and stuff. It's gross, but it, it instilled in me something that allowed me to deal with my childhood. Um, in a way that I think now is, is one reason I truly see that we, from a, as a child, you skin your knee, hush, hush. It's okay. It's okay. That's it's going to be better. Right. We don't give space to let them cry. Let them flush out their tears. It hurts. It's okay for it to hurt. We hush people up from a young age to not talk about what's bad or hurting or stop that. We already talked about that. Don't bring it up again. Like all these little things that were done and, and treated with. So no wonder as adults, we don't feel comfortable talking about the pain. Right. And yet the gateway to healing is through the pain. If you study the body, if you get burned really bad, the nurses come in, they scrub your skin to remove the dead cell. It's very painful, but that is required to stimulate new growth to get the dead off so that more can come. And that's the same way in our lives. What's currently happening in your life that's painful is to polish you. It's to renew you. It's to grow you to a deeper level. It's pruning the rosebush back in the winter so that in the summer, it's way more bountiful and beautiful with big, gorgeous, fragrant buds of petals and, and beauty, right? Our lives are the same way. 
But the more we fight it, we stunt our growth. The more we make it wrong and bad, the more that we're not giving space for what we're, we're in our humanness, what we're experiencing to be okay. And so that's one of the things I, I really work in the transformational coaching is the pain people are experiencing. How can you love your body more? You know, we get sick. I don't have time for this. So now you're telling your body it's wrong. It's bad because you don't have time to be sick. There's so much power in our words. There's so much power in how we embrace the pain. Um, and I, I feel there's more work to be done where we have said we're not defined by our failures, but society is still defining themselves by their successes. And if you're not defined by your failures, you're also not defined by your successes. It, it, it can't be one way or the other. Hmm. So to answer your question, come back, move back around, I would say it's, it's talking about those things that are really deeply hurtful and painful even if nobody else has experienced what you've experienced. I've since met people that have you know, been radically abused like I was. Maybe not with feet being burned with matches, maybe not, but the, the, their similarities as far as the treatment. I know it's not, I'm not unique, but in the other ways, how many across society are like that? There's probably more than we know, but at the same time, I also have to accept that it's not average. But that doesn't make, make me now a bad person. It doesn't make me now have a stigma, right? Unless I place that on myself. And so the more I normalize what I went through was normal for me, it's not necessarily normal for human nature, but it was normal for my life, then the easier it is to deal with. But when you, you put an underlying belief that it's wrong, it's bad, which I'm not saying abuse is right, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying the emotional charge that you're putting to it makes it that much more difficult than to heal. Yeah. I've heard it. I've heard it said too, like that healing comes through that through expression, just expression mm -hmm. as a whole. Um, for me too, I think um, it's come when I have found a level of safety in that proximity, like safe mm -hmm. relationships. And I didn't even know what that felt like actually until I met my, my boyfriend search. Um, and that was a level for me to, to see some of my own trauma in a whole different light. I met a part of myself that I had been, I I'd never met her <laughs> because I never felt safe enough to meet her. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I'm really grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you're doing, the healing journey that you're on and that you bring people into that with you. I think mm -hmm. it's really powerful and important. Um, and like, like we said at the beginning, I think it's really um, like more of us need to be bringing people into process um, because I think one of the things too that that is, is a gift to me anyway, is to, to hear people going through life, hitting their head against things that like I may be struggling with or coming up against or needing to heal from and making space for, and not that I have to do what they're doing, but I think there's a level of permission that happens when someone else is being brave in their story and sharing. And so I really, um, I appreciate you so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that once you start sharing it, you become more um, secure in your voice. You come your, your expression um, honoring yourself and what you've been through. And I think through that process, the sharing is part of the healing, but it's also, it's also the gateway to explore further and deeper what else is going on behind the scenes that you're not even aware of subconsciously. And, you know, I read something or, or heard something in one of the documentaries I saw a documentary podcast recently that talked about that um, our thought process is only about 10% conscious, 90% subconscious. Yes. That's a significant amount. And so when you think of like my life being in a cult for 37 years and a mindset that women are suppressive, women, you know, can't be this, can't be that. You're not supposed to make more money than a man. All these things I was told, how are they still affecting my life subconsciously? I may think I have, you know, worked through whatever, but how are these things still unraveling? And sometimes you don't really know, especially when you're going through a, a difficult time, you can't really put your finger on it. But it's, again, by exploring it being, in my definition of authenticity, open, real, raw, and vulnerable to yourself, the more that you're going to find those answers. Um, but I mean, there's no matter amount of work you've done, like I'm grateful for the work I've done the last seven, eight years um, to bring me from 37 to 45, but there's still more layers. I see it. I'm going through it right now in a relationship with a man who loves me, but isn't in love with me. And now I don't want to have sex with him. And now I don't want to be naked around him. And now like I, I'm making my body wrong because he doesn't love me. And so I'm having to see that, having to see what I'm doing to shut down the powerful being I am, right? Um, and explore those feelings, right? It is how can you love me, but not be in love with me? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What, what did I do? What did I not do? Like that's automatically where we go in situations like this. Mm. We think we've not done the right thing or we've been bad or we've been, you know, a horrible person, not, you know, whatever. And I think life has a way of bringing to you all those statements and things that you've said or believed to show you that that's not true. Like if you could have told me I could be in a relationship with a man, we get along great. We don't argue. We have great communication, um, great affection, but to be in this situation where I'm cohabitating, cohabitating now with a man who isn't a hundred percent committed the way I am and figuring out what am I going to do now? you know, it's bringing up a whole new level of, of emotions, yes. a whole new level of feelings. And again, it's going back to everywhere that feels scary or wrong or bad, not good enough. Those are the things I explore. Those are the things that I look at what's triggering that feeling and pain, but I have to do it from a space of unconditional love acceptance. If I don't, I'm never, I'm never going to move past it. And I think when you talk about pain in people's lives, if they can't accept their own pain and unconditionally love it, they're never going to be able to do yours. And so as hard as that is, sometimes to understand what people that mean the world to you, but say things that are very hurtful, they don't, they don't realize what they're doing 
but they're not accepting. And I have to take a step back. Like, it's not about me. This is them not being able to accept their own pain so they can't accept mine. Mm. But we tend to, again, go back to what I said a little bit ago. Well, Misty, then you haven't totally healed if this shit's coming back up in your world. Like, no, it's triggering a deeper layer. And I think there's also an element when you study the human body, which I believe God gave us as an example, you know, people who've been in the army, army, military, Navy, whatever, and they come home many times have phantom pains. If they lost a limb, their limb is healed, but there's still phantom pains that happen. And I think that can, we can experience the same thing emotionally, but it's what are the tools that we have to love ourselves and give ourselves that kindness and compassion that we were never given in the real moment that those things happened prior and do it now in the aftermath of whatever it is. Hmm. Yes. And so I, I really do think the key is in the pain. Yes. Well, and as you're experiencing too, there are things that I think we can only learn in relationship with other people um, because all of a sudden there is a mirror that comes up and you start to see or notice your patterns or you notice you notice their patterns and how much it bothers you about how mm-hmm. they're living their life. And you're like, what is, why is this even a thing? Yeah. Why, why does this bother me so much? Um, and it starts to give you some more context for that too. Um, sure. Not right or wrong. I, no. I like too, that you, um, you brought that element in because what we judge, we, we stop the flow of, right. When we feel judged, we shut down. And so when we're having those emotions or when we're seeking that healing, um, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is just notice, just witness how we're responding and not making it wrong or right. And that's been one of the most powerful things for me and my own clients is, is, is stopping that judgment. And then thinking too, I always, we take it back. I feel like it's so much easier when we think about working with a child, right? We don't make them wrong for the bad behavior. We correct the behavior. We're not like, you're a horrible person um, for for do, tying your shoelaces wrong or whatever yeah. it is, something silly. Yeah. yeah, It's like, you just tied it the wrong way. Let's yeah. fix that. Let's, and, yeah. um, and I do think there's a challenge when you are, are someone like us that has been through difficult things in life as a young person and you're trying to unravel it as an adult. And I understand that the training that they do many times coaches or counselors and take you back to the little girl, the little wounded person, but it's sometimes like I'm a big person. I I can't relate to that little girl. Okay. And so I, if I have used, how would I treat someone else? If I, if, if, if they were having a, a breakdown, would I make them wrong or bad? Would I shame them? Would I go stick them in the closet? All these things my mom did to us. Yeah. Or, or would I pull you close and go, I'm sorry, honey, it's hurting. And then that helps me be more in tune with myself to be unconditionally loving and accepting of what I'm going through. Yes. Um, because the little girl, I don't always relate to her. She was, she was so squelched and so stifled and so controlled and that energy, that emotion, like I don't even recognize her, you know? Yes. And so a lot of times for me, it's like, if I know how I would be to you, 
if you were going through a breakup with a man that said he loves you, but he's not in love with you, then I know how I want to treat myself. Right. Um, but I think a lot of it is, is learning how to stand up for yourself, whatever that is, especially when you've been in an environment with such an extensive abuse. Yes. Um, and we can chalk it up that you're not healed. I, I don't believe that's, I don't believe that's the issue. I'm not saying that there isn't pain that needs to be healed. I'm not saying there's not work that needs to be done, but I believe it's an unraveling. And I, for myself, every layer I've gotten to Evelyn, there's another layer. It's like, God takes me to another layer of purification, refining, making me a stronger individual. And we can say cliche statements, but that doesn't solve what the person's going through, right? We can say hurting people hurt people. We can say loving people love people. We can say all these kinds of things. They were an abuser. Abusers, you know, have these protocols, these patterns. We can put people in boxes, but that doesn't still solve what they're facing in that moment, which is reliving an experience on a whole new level all over again. And so when society reacts to a bad, it's something I have to work on to not shame myself. So just because you can't deal with what I've discussed about what I went through doesn't mean I need to, I need to be small, play small and hide and, and tone down my experience because you don't have the energy or the ma- brand, the, sorry, the bandwidth to be able to encompass this, these details. Right. And I've also had to realize that in the moment when people do show up that way, give them grace and space because it's probably triggering something in their life that they never dealt with. Mm. Yes. So the, the, the healing and the unraveling and is, is a multi-level um, experience. And when you come from a foundation like I was, where there's a lot of religion to it, there's an unraveling with that as to how was this, you know, how people say, well, God doesn't allow such things. Well, he, he did, <laughs> you know, like, and so your mind has to sort through those kinds of things in the religious aspect of people's beliefs and um, figure out what's true and come back to simple principles that the truth will set you free. So if you're, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling in chains, the truth has not been expressed. You need to get to the truth, get it out, whatever that is. And so certain things like that, I hold to instead of these big, you know, um, statements that people like to make as far as an empowering um, moment is sometimes it's just little things like that that bring you back and and working through um, the contradictions because there was a lot of your heart is deceitful above all desperately wicked but yet my heart is the heart that's going to love God with all my mind heart soul and strength it's also the heart that God's going to give me the desires of my heart. So sorting through that chaos that's embedded in your life from a young age to shame you, to guilt you, to make you compliant, to make you play safe, um, to be controlled and learning how to explore those things and being bold to say the truth. Um, no matter if you get rejected from it, no matter if you get further abuse. And, and I think that's the the thing people that have been abused a lot struggle with is they many times they come forth with truth and then their life gets worse. Mm. So having, having the guts to realize that 
freedom might not come immediately, but it will come. Hmm. It's powerful. Yeah. It's, it's a powerful experience to, you know, continually to work through. Um, and there's many times when I'm on interviews like this and I then re-listen to them later because I always do. Sometimes it's hard to realize that was my life. Even though I've lived it, when you've moved on so much and you've done so much work, it's like, you know, holy shit, <laughs> how, how could a parent be like that? And, you know, I've, I've realized my mom hasn't faced her own stuff. And with the work I've done, I realize now she probably was greatly abused in her childhood, possibly sexually, to have such fear of my dad molesting us and all these things that she thought was going to happen. Um, she had a lot of demons she hadn't dealt with and she put those on us, um, in multiple ways. And whether that was wanting perfect children that were flawless or whether that was, um, overprotection because of her not being protected, whatever it was that caused her to be that way, it was pain that she never dealt with. And by not dealing with that pain, she caused more pain on other people. And so that's one thing I remind myself is when the pain comes up, if I don't deal with it in some way or somehow it's going to affect other people. So yeah, hurting people hurt people, but that's an ongoing thing if we don't deal with our own pain and it will affect your body. It will affect you. It will affect other parts of your body, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, if you're not in tune to the truth. Yes. And yes. So, I wouldn't say I have one answer to tell you what was the key. I would just say that being open to the pain and knowing that you have to, the way out is through. The way out is through the pain. You can't bypass it. Uh, you can try. You can, and I'm not saying that there aren't times in life that it's too much on your physical state to face it. So you've got to self-medicate. You've got to, you know, that's why people have addictions of various things. Um, but I know that for many years, that's why I was such a workaholic. That was my coping method was to do good because I was never deemed good. Even straight A's is never enough. So I was going to try to be a perfectionist and never do anything wrong. And so learning that I can do things wrong and I'm still a good person, that doesn't make me unworthy. That doesn't make me unlovable. There are people that will turn it into that, but that's because they have their own paradigm about what life and expectations are supposed to be. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Like, thank you for being here and thank you for sharing. Um, I'm grateful for you. Is there, is there anything that you want to share before we wrap today? I mean, it's been, it's been beautiful having you. And I love that the only way out of pain is, is through. Yeah. That question I ask myself anytime I'm feeling held back is what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And that could just be afraid to stand up and tell the truth, afraid to ask for my needs or my wants, afraid to share what I'm experiencing and how I felt disrespected and not valued and appreciated and loved. Uh, it could be just, you know, my own fear of accepting my story, my life, but it shows its way in different things and different experiences and it allows us to grow beyond them. And so any listener that's struggling to share their story, anybody that's struggling to accept what they were dealt with their childhood, 
you know, starting with what, what I do if I wasn't afraid, if I felt I was always provided for, taken care of and loved and accepted, and that there was a safe space for me to share, what would I do? It's a powerful question to consider. It is. <laughs> it always has an answer when we're willing to listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I'm grateful for an opportunity to have this discussion, and I applaud you for creating a platform to bring more people to be able to have these authentic discussions, uh, to talk about the things of life that people struggle with and struggle to find answers, struggle to find help, struggle to find their way, their path. And when you've been through abuse and it's been twisted inside out, upside down, it's sometimes hard to know what you feel, what you think, what you believe. And so having spaces to explore that is the power for giving people the key to deal with their pain. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for people like you that see that and see a need for it. So well, thank, thank you for allowing me to be part of that. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's also part of my own process. I am, I, I want to, to help us all find more ways to be completely embodied, completely free, um, and find that healing and that expansion. And it doesn't mm-hmm. always have to be like you said, that hoorah, we're on the, uh, we're on top of the mountain and we've conquered the mountain in this hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah. I just, I, I'm, I want us to be creating communities, um, of safety for each other in our experiences, in our heartbreak in our joy wherever that is um and really really walking with people through what they've been through and, and hearing and witnessing those stories because I think it's really important it is so, well, thank I you appreciate so you everyone. yeah I appreciate you too and we'll definitely have to do another episode in the future okay we will do it <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. It's not lost on me that you can be anywhere. You can be listening to anyone and I don't take your time for granted. I hope that this episode has really helped you feel more seen, known, loved, and helps you grow and really challenge things within you that may need to shift or change. It's my honor and privilege to be here in this place with you. If this podcast does mean something to you and you want to help me personally, could you please rate and review where you listen to your podcasts? Because that stuff really does matter. People really do look at ratings and it would help me really grow this space because I would love to grow this community and grow and love together. Or if there's a friend that you kept thinking about in this episode, please send it to them. How much fun is it to get something from someone that made us think of them Don't we feel so loved and seen? And that's the point and purpose of this podcast. So thank you again for being here. Until next time.